After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Hi everyone, Raghu here with my, I don't know, second or third oldest buddy in the entire world, in the universe. The man who started out with mind rolling with me and um, who I, I was going to say to you, Dave, Dave Silver, of course everybody knows David. Hi David. Hello. Good Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Um you know, I was going to tell you before, actually, that whenever I do a podcast, you know, there's some preparation involved and, you know, some a little bit of, okay, I've really got to get my shit together and be very present and, and you know, the thought that I have to continually keep the conversation going, you know, like a talk show host kind of who, and they all have, you know, well scripted out pretty much. Um, and then... It comes to you, and I thought, you know, because I've been putting a bunch together because I'm going to India, and uh, so I've been doing a lot of them, and then I was going to tell you that the thought of doing this one with you on this lovely Saturday afternoon, not one shred of anxiety did I have. Oh, I'm very happy to hear that. That's yeah. great. So it's more of a joy. Oh, okay. I can relax and hang out. We can hang out and do what we do normally. Yeah, right. Hang out and chat. That's all. Right. So um, we do have a little bit of an agenda today, but before we get into it, um, just uh, wanted to, first of all, bring back a couple of the things I don't really do much anymore. One of them is recommending stuff for Amazon that people can get through our BeHereNowNetwork.com Amazon link. Do you know, I've got to believe you know about this book. Uh, it's... It's a new uh, oral history of Bob Marley. Do you know it? No. It's, it's called So Much Things to Say from that song. Really? Yeah. Oh. Roger Steffens. Do you know Roger? I do. <laughs> Ooh, that's pregnant. Uh, the, the review is by Touré, by the way. Touré. I, mean, I remember him from, from television. Who, uh, Roger or Toure? Toure? No, Toure. I know Roger from for forty years. Oh. I haven't seen I haven't seen him for a while. Uh, Toure it, it was a host on MTV for years, and then on MSNBC for more years. Oh, uh, yeah, because he was familiar to me as well. He's a fabulous guy, um, and and a terrific analyst of just about everything. Very much admire that guy. 
Well, he was pretty high about this book, David, and um, yeah, I'm sure it's good. I'm sure Roger Roger's very very detailed. Very, he knows what he's talking about. Mm. And I just that there's one beautiful thing in here. Every once in a while, a special artist comes along, someone who appears to speak for the people. It's in his music, his life story, his worldview, and the way he carries himself. He seems like an extension of the people and their leader. His music does not acro come across as a commercial gesture because it's as if he's on the public stage to speak for his constituents and give voice to their feelings and their needs. He seems like a sort of cultural senator, a man who represents his people who vote for him with their dollars and their love. No music star in the Western world has ever been a more powerful cultural senator on the global stage than Nesta Robert Marley. Nice, huh? Yeah, I think, I think it's true, yeah. I mean, yeah, absolutely. I, I, I but it would just interpolate that in one of the many meetings I had with him, um, or video videotapings with him. With Bob. Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't know how many times I did that, probably fifteen. Um, but in the one that was the most important, which was the last one, uh, in eight, in August or early September of 1980, uh, when he was already ill, um, my friend Earl Chin, the, the first and only great reggae VJ, who mm -hmm. you know, uh, was interviewing him. And, and there's a part which uh, eventually you'll see, because I have it, not today, but upcoming, shall we say. Um, and Earl said to him, asked him a question which I knew was the wrong question. He said, well, man, you know, what's it like to be a superstar man? And Bob Lean said, I, not, not superstar, not such a thing, man. I'm a messenger man of Ja. Hmm. I'm a messenger. That is it. That superstar, no, it's nothing. And, you know, that's what Roger or Turek, whoever wrote that, was that Toure's or Roger's writing? No, that was Toure. Okay, Toure. Uh, senator is, is a nice way of putting it because yeah. he did represent, um, he represented third or what they what he called first world people. And um, he represented people of color everywhere. Uh, he also represented the poor and incredibly oppressed of Kingston, uh, of Kingston that where, where he was brought up, you know, where there was incredible poverty, still is, and where the country's run by like eight families or something. And, um, you know, the people lived very badly there when I was first going there in the 70s. And uh, Bob was very conscious of that and never lived in a regal manner. He had a nice house in Hope Road. It wasn't a particularly great house and it had a concrete yard. And, you know, he was very humble. He drove a BMW because he liked the fact that BMW was the same as Bob Marley and the Whalers. He told, <laughs> really? He told, he told me that, yeah. Because <laughs> I, saw, I saw his Beamer and he said, yeah, man, Bob Marley, Whaler, man, car. <laughs> so <laughs> that's, <laughs> yeah, really. But, but to where he's right, he did represent globally. I mean, even in India, you see so many people wearing Bob Marley T-shirts and, you know. Uh, oh, no absolutely globally right? yeah. and it's uh, one thing is in this article um that his former business manager colin leslie i don't know if you knew him um said that he um, thought yeah. 
he thought uh, so there were many people who depended on Marley for hot meals for or just money for food or money for sustain sustainability and he said uh, s- people say Marley supported around 4,000 people wow. and Leslie thinks it was more wow isn't that that's, amazing that's, and talk ah. about love everyone and feed them yeah that is incredible I didn't I didn't know that that really? yeah he just used that he was extraordinarily generous and and that's what he did he fed people wow. gave money away you know, he never thought he was a, a guru of any kind. What he thought was that the, the words and the music uh, represented him a, a direct channel to a sort of universal morality, you know. And um, he, he was the most adept, I guess, at communicating that in, in, in Jamaica at that time. And um, he was beloved, absolutely beloved by everyone. And if you mention, you know, if you mentioned Bob Marley that you were working with him or something, you you know, you'd get free grub or free anything because people just loved him. You know, he didn't do anything ever to alienate the real people in his home country. He didn't. He never acted in an arrogant manner. Although his manner itself was kind of not arrogant but certain. Mm-hmm. I've never met anyone who was more absolutely imbued and 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 steeped in his spirituality, I, you know, except for people you and I both have met and, uh, you know, in India, but in the Western world, I've never met anyone like that. He was just so, he had a sense of humor and he certainly checked out the women and, you know, he was very normal like that. But um, when he would discuss his work, he would always attribute it to, uh, to the divine rather than anything in his own ego or, creativity or talent he didn't have any use for those kind of words just was a messenger as he said mm. yeah, so great and for those of you out there i don't these aren't available unfortunately because david has not made them available although he it's part of some of the things he's working on uh, yeah show, it is. actually oh it I is wanted, no it's not available although it, it, on YouTube, occasionally people pick it out and then it gets sent off there. But I am actually in the process right now of, of trying to put together. A, it won't happen immediately, but by January of 18, um, a website with I have 125 videos that I want to put on there mm. uh, yeah. of all kinds. And he's big, a big part of that. Uh, they will direct people to YouTube because to have an archive on your own website, you need a huge amount of gigabytes and yeah oh yeah no so I, don't, I don't want to do that but there'll be a, a little commentary by me about each clip and bob is going to figure very prominently you know in that well everybody uh, stay tuned and you know when david does that it'll all be hooked up to be here now network and we're, we're going to help uh, promote it and everything but there is uh, one in particular that i've seen many times uh that david filmed with bob doing a solo um r- recording a uh, video of him playing what was that guitar he was playing called it was an epiphone an epiphone Uh uh-huh he didn't have a guitar that day for some reason he couldn't find the guitar so we went to manny's guitar store on 44th street i think it was and begged them to lend us a guitar which they were not going to do until i mentioned the word bob marley (laughs) and they said you mean he's going to touch this i said yes he is could have just run off with it i don't know why they dressed yeah he did play that epiphone and um he wasn't totally thrilled with the guitar he was such a perfectionist 
Okay. He did it over. What was the song actually? He did. Me. He did Redemption song nine times. It had come in and yeah, from Redemption song. Yeah, my times. favorite he did, song. He did nineteen takes of two songs, and we just all sat there in a kind of bliss state, you hmm. know. And and I must tell the story that after each one, he would ask Earl Chin and myself. Uh, we were sitting together. He'd say, "Well, what do you think?" And I'd say every time like a real psychophant, but I I meant it. That was great. No, not good enough. And he'd do another one and another one, and they all sounded like to me. But I guess in coming from inside out, they weren't for him. Mm. And I wish it, I wish I had all the takes. I don't. Oh, really? I don't. Oh, I have coming in from God. the cold. I have coming in from the cold, and I have redemption song, the one that we actually yeah used used. Yeah. Yeah. Anyhow, you guys out there, uh, yeah, stay tuned in, and uh, as soon as David's ready, we'll we're gonna let everybody know. We'll. Get on the mailing list, by the way. Uh, BeHereNowNetwork.com because then you're going to get informed about this because this alone is worth the price of admission, let me tell you. Well, it's so great. To, I mean, that, that makes me tremendously joyous to think that we be in such, you know, amazingly uh, fabulous company because mm. those teachers and minds and hearts uh, on um, both the app and on the website in general yeah. are just um, immaculately useful to everyone, everyone, everybody. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad I really... you mentioned that, the, the, uh, the Heart Mind app. And I haven't talked about this in such a long time. It's such a great wealth of, of content. It's just absolutely wonderful. Um, yeah, I, I recommend people just get it on their phone. And if they're waiting for a meeting or waiting for a doctor or on a train or a plane and something hits them that darkens them, just go to that app and you'll find something on there that will take you right out of that mood. Yeah, it's only on uh, Apple iOS right now because we can't afford to put it on um, uh, the other platform. Android. Uh, Android. And uh, it's heart, mind, one word. Just go there and pick it up. And also, again, go get this book. Stir it up. It's... Uh, it, it's that's not what it's called it's called so much things to say the oral history of bob marley by roger steffens and please use our portal on beherenownetwork.com and just bookmark it again it's going to go a long way to help support what we're doing so that's something i haven't done in a long time dave and yeah. that recommendation yeah do it because roger you know I, I i didn't mean to be anyway cold about roger roger's the ultimate archivist of he has the biggest bob marley archive in the world in los mm. angeles and you can go visit it actually it's, oh really well someone just emailed me and told me that I, like yesterday so that would be interesting but listening to the music is and if you're going to listen to the music and you want to listen to Exodus, get the Exodus Deluxe Edition, which has long, long dub versions and live versions of Exodus on it. And it's sort of like a double CD, I suppose. It's been out for a few years. Mm -hmm. and it's worth. Don't get the original CD. Get that one for whatever it is, $5, $10, whatever more. You, you won't regret it because it's just Bob Marley, you know, unplugged. Fabulous. Mm. Really. Oh, I don't have that. I'm going to get it. It's great. Um, okay, now switching to another thing. We used to have this, you know, uh, little segment, news from the end of the world, and I haven't done that. And <laughs> since the world is already ending. Little did we know. <laughs> yeah. I, there's not much we can say about that. Uh, you know, just pick up your paper every day. Um, but so I thought instead, um, I came up, I have a tip for you, for us. 
Okay. Okay, it's a new thing. It's it's a way to get out of the prison of unexamined preferences. You know how we like we have major preferences in our lives that preclude us sometimes from taking a path that might be harder, but in the end it might sort of toughen up our soul or toughen up our uh, our our uh, perspective so that we can actually engage in our lives in in a in a way that's not always running from um, uh, pain, running from uncomfortable stuff, and so it's a therapy. Okay, and I'm recommending it to you as well, Dave. Cold shower therapy. Who? <laughs> See, <laughs> right away. Yeah, it, it's <laughs> someone came up with this whole plan. Uh, so um, this guy's going. Uh, so repeated one to two million times with subtle variation is my life under liking and disliking merciless regime. They are vigilant, they are tireless, and they are in many cases squarely opposed to my self-interest, right? Liking and disliking. And as I discovered recently, there's nothing quite like a cold shower to, to reveal their essential fraudulence because showers happen every day. And because they are so fundamentally unimportant, they are the perfect form for dragging these little tyrants <laughs> as Ramdas would call them, maybe schmooze, of preference into the light and forcing them to confess that they have all along been bluffing in those moments before you stepped in, step into the cold stream. Dislike, disliking will invariably begin to shriek and do what you just did. Whoop, no, absolutely not. Can you imagine what that's going to feel like against our back, our chest, our genitals, for God's sake? And, uh, and if you can summon the strength to say thank you, that's very interesting, and then proceed to step into the water anyhow, you will discover something. The cold water will, of course, hit your back and your chest and your genitals, and none of this will feel great. But if you can bear it for a few seconds, unclenching your muscles, relaxing your grimace, you will notice as you begin to soap up that disliking has fallen asleep. <laughs> you, are, can we try that? Tomorrow. I've tried. I mean, I've I've done cold showers, uh, you know, and it's with this in mind. Yes, breaking through. Because, attachment. Yeah, because it just to makes preference. You, you, yeah, I, because I remember the experience. I was doing it. It was in India, actually, and um, yeah, easier there. Well, <laughs> you don't get hot water most of the time. Right, the water was very cold, and I done the first time I did it. I thought I was going to die, <laughs> and and then a couple of times after that, I began to see that there were all kinds of stuff coming off me similar to what he's saying i remember it was like wow i'm so hooked on this i'm ho so hooked on that yeah. i'm so into comfort i'm such an american european spoiled you know person who thinks that if you don't have hot water or you don't have a microwave or whatever that you're you know you're deprived and i began to feel that kind of um i suppose it was a sort of shame actually you know that to to attach to comfort, hmm. and this. But apart from that, it also. I mean, medically, it apparently does amazing things for you because you hear about uh, uh, sports figures, uh, NBA people, and British um, football soccer players frequently take cold baths. Uh, yeah, they get into well, yeah, they get into an ice bath. 
Yeah, yeah, and and that's similar, you know. I mean, it just sort of does work on their muscles, but also it takes a certain kind of courage to just go in, you know. And for the first few seconds, it is like murder. It's like you're being tortured. Yeah, um, yeah. This is an article called "Cold Showers" by Ben Dolnik. Thank you, Ben. It was in the New York Times Magazine some time ago, and um, I, I guess I really related with it because you know I'm a horrible. Uh, person around wanting my preferential comforts and I thought I thought you were too but you already gone through this exercise and come out on top yeah but I did it for uh, 10 days and then was so thrilled that I wouldn't have to do it again (laughs) so I'm not a good practitioner of this but Uh, I believe he's right I really do and I I, I'm very big about hot 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 showers yeah well, uh, in the end, of course, yeah. any way that one can use methodology to break through uh, preferences. You know, the the Tao, where there is no preferences, right? That is the truth. If we can, uh, Ramdas reset. What what's the fifth, uh, third Zen patriarch? That thing. It's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. We'll get that up on the. Uh, by the way, on the. Uh, mind rolling page show notes page of this podcast so you can uh, think um, we'll get them to put that the whole thing ramdas does it's fantastic third zen patriarch it's all about what we're talking about and you can kick it off by a cold shower tomorrow morning um <laughs> <laughs> all right so i i called dave and i said listen i want to do a podcast because there's one thing that we have we never did it we mentioned we have mentioned this being that we're going to talk about in podcasts in the early days of mind rolling but we've never done a more comprehensive um, telling of his story so to speak and um, and I'll tell you one thing Dave I don't know if I've mentioned this to you but you know our friend our, our new friend fairly new in the last couple few years we call him the Jungle Baba. He's a an Indian Baba that we that we see and and uh, appreciate. Uh, amazing, amazing uh, being. He told actually a really good friend of mine. He said in the last century or so, there have been three beings that um, have exemplified being on this planet absolutely for no reason but to serve people and are considered the highest siddhas. Uh, And siddha would be um, a completely accomplished, finished human that is is not living in duality whatsoever, uh, but still is able to maintain a body. Is still eating and defecating and doing all of that, right? So he named th- these three. Now, this, this Jungle Bob is no one, you know, I, I, I took him completely seriously. So one of them was Neem Karoli Baba. One of them was Shirdi Sai Baba. And the other one, we don't, I don't remember the name, but we d- we're not familiar with him. Hmm. So pretty amazing. And... I have always felt that there was such a connectivity between Neem Karoli Baba and Shirdi Sai Baba in the way they behaved, which was very odd and not not what you read about in, for instance, um, autobiography of a yogi 
this, the saints that are described, you know, Lahiri and incredible beings. Um, it's something really, really uh, distinguishably uh, non-rational, the way that they behaved and so on. Now, you, you all out there have heard, of course, a lot about Neem Karoli Baba and Maharaji, and Dave and I have talked about him at infinitum, and he comes up a lot because of our relationship with him and because of, uh, of Ramdas and so on, but we have not talked a lot. David has talked a little bit about Shirdi Sai Baba, and I just thought that out of all these beings that we try and share with, with everybody out there, um, we need to do this with this inestimable inestimable uh, realized soul. Yeah, I just should There he is. Shirdi Sai Baba. Now this is to distinguish between Sai Baba from uh, the Bangalore area of India who left his body maybe four or five years ago. Um, this is to distinguish that these are completely two different um, beings. Although many people say that there is a connection between them, um, that's a whole other matter that we don't need to get into whatsoever. But David, uh, David has been close to uh, Shirdi Baba, and these beings, by the way, absolutely do not need a body to do what it is they do on a day-to-day basis. Um, and David has been close to Shirdi Sai Baba for many, many, many years. Um, probably got me more introduced to him uh, really. more than any other person that I know. And, and certainly um, it's been a big connector for us. And I, can you just, just tell a little bit about just well, kind of when he lived and who he is? You who know, he, he lived approximately at the exact same time, a little longer than Queen Victoria, who reigned from 1837 to about 1901 or something. Mm. He was born, I think, in that year, 1837. I could be wrong about this, but it was certainly sometime in the late 30s or early 40s of the 19th century. And he died in 1918, which happens to be the end of the First World War. And um, much was documented. Uh, but, you know, compared with those um, ascended masters like Ramakrishna or... You know, there were no huge books at the time written about it. And, of course, there was no recording. So it all comes from his devotees. Lots of books written. Uh, when you're in India, uh, I'm sure you've seen this, uh, Raga, many times. You see Sai Baba. Oh, everywhere. Everywhere. I stayed in a hotel in Delhi, which was a Shirdi Sai Baba hotel, which had a huge picture of him above the, the entrance. And it was a very inexpensive hotel, but immaculately clean and and, and really, really a very beautiful vibe. So Shirdi lived throughout that time, and he moved to the village of Shirdi uh, mysteriously from nobody knows where. And the stories, the various stories about his parentage are completely weird, and, you know, as weird as anybody could be in terms of who they were and, and how they sort of dropped him in the woods somewhere and he at the age of I think about 16 or 17 just went to this place called Sherdy and took a, a residence under a neem tree and and that was it and never left and at first the people who lived in that village didn't know who he was and thought he was a lunatic and at best a faker uh, because there was another person 
a, a teacher of some kind in that village who was very threatened by the sudden appearance of this young, beautiful man who immediately exhibited all kinds of uh, knowledge and a great deal of love and caring for the people of the village. So this guy opposed him forever and called him a faker and was you know, awful about it. But it, it wasn't long, apparently, probably by the early 1860s that people began to um, understand who this person was. And he was a, a great siddha, a saint. Uh, and as Raghu perfectly put it, one of the most bizarre manifestations in a human body you could possibly imagine, which we'll get into. Um, in other words, he did things that I, I've never heard of anybody else doing and in terms of his own physical body. And he had no need for anything. I think the word side, besides meaning a, a, a divine uh, entity, also means a mendicant. Mm. And that's what Sai Baba was. He begged for rice every day. And uh, he would never had, as it were, a cook or cooked his own food or had any food in his house. He just would go and beg it and they would give it to him. And uh, they felt that it was a great, um, an incredible blessing to be able to give him any food. So the women of the village in particular used to cook for him and come and bring food to him, but he would often walk around the village. And the most um, significant thing about him that first struck me when I first heard about him, which was in 1972, um, was that nobody ever knew, and this is a fact, whether he was a Hindu mm. or a Muslim. And he made that part of his shtick. I mean, he was so against the idea of religions, organized religions, dividing human beings instead of uniting them in, in love, that he refused to, I mean, he called his temple or the place he lived in actually a masjid as opposed to a temple. He wore clothes that were not in any way relatable to either religion. He spoke about the Quran. He spoke about Muhammad. He spoke about those people, as well as speaking about, oh, Datatreya and Shiva and the great Indian deities. So he made a point of this. And when you think about it, it's still such an amazingly prevalent part of our troubled world. And he mm. just dismissed that and said, no way. This is not going to happen with me. I don't care what religion you are. I don't care what you're say you believe in or whatever it may be true may not be true but what is true is is the pervade the, the pervasive uh actuality of a divine being and uh he exemplified that in everything he did he had no um other life i mean he just was at the service of the people of charity and the surrounding villages so uh there are many stories and i just will stop here so raghu makes the next um incisive point and then we can come back with some no of i mean you know well two things when you when you talk about him and that that is such a key that he served both the muslim and the hindu communities he'd force them to go into each other's uh, temple and mosque and and they were if you th it would you know it the way it is today how polarized it is today it was as polarized, or more back then, not more. It's just, you know, it's been going on for centuries. And he worked so hard at, at loosening that, uh, that terrible proclivity to uh, sectarianism. I mean, he, he worked so hard at that. With, just by his being, he, did, there wasn't, he wasn't somebody who was thinking about doing things. There was no, uh, 
uh, an ego actor whatsoever. There was just the unfolding of his, who he is, who he is. And so what, very much similar to, there was a saint in the 16th century named Kabir. And Kabir also, they, you know, he made a huge point of, of being, uh, you know, of, of, of crossing the divide between Muslims and Hindus. And so there was, I think there's a lot of uh, connectivity there. And interestingly enough, Maharat Ninkaroli Baba used to talk about Kabir as well in the same way that we're talking about uh, Shirdi Baba. And I, I, he never, I don't remember him talking directly to us about Shirdi Baba. I think he did mention him. Um, I'm, I'm, you know, listen, I, I was only there for a year and a half, you know, and everything else is hearsay. But directly to me, I didn't never heard that. But Kabir, I did, and so there's, a, so that is uh, amazingly in, in sync with who Shirdi Baba is, and Maharaji himself, also. What's the, the day after day? Subek. There's only one, and he talked to us about Christ and Hanuman. So. That was that blend. It wasn't, uh, you know, um, Mohammed and and Shiva. It was Christ and Hanuman. But right, same thing, right? Yeah. Basically the same thing. Definitely. But I, you know, what I'd love to hear. There, I, I know you've uh, got some uh, stories and stuff, but just a couple of the really enigmatic ones that you may recollect about him and the actions that he took in that village. Well. Um, on a fairly basic level, one of the things about Shirdi was that he would exhibit incredible fierceness occasionally. Um, and, yeah, uh, right. particularly towards, uh, well, not particularly towards anything, but occasionally it would come out. And I, I remember reading in one of the many books written in India in the last 50, 60 years about him, that um, people would come sometimes to get his darshan and he would refuse them. And um, one of his... Um, great devotees, I think it was Hemad Pant, said to him, Baba, how could you, I mean, how could you refuse anyone? I mean, they come here and they know what you are and who you are, and yet you say no. And he said a strange enigmatic thing, to use your word, Raghu, which was, uh, he said, I've been with the same family through millions of incarnations, and I'm still with them, and I know who they are, and I know who I'm supposed to connect with, and those that don't either need my connection or I just, I'm not supposed to connect with them. And everybody was sort of like, wow, that's a whole different view. And he actually was saying, you, you, you are sitting in front of me here in the, in the masjid. I knew you then when you were so-and-so, and I knew you then when you were so-and-so. And it was his um, um, vision of his own service that he would keep servicing the same people who needed repeated treatment. Um, so, you know, that was his sort of, but most of the most of the people he was incredibly kind to, and he was a very joyous creature and sang and danced actually a lot. And there's great paintings. If you bother to, you can go to uh, a million sites on online about Baba Sai Baba and uh, Shirdi Sai Baba, and you'll see eventually there's a, little, a, a a series of paintings which show him dancing, singing uh, with a dog. Uh, he liked dogs and cats. Oh, yeah. Yes, I have a beautiful picture of him with a dog. He liked cats too, and he liked yeah. children. And, uh, you know, he was the most beautiful and, and wonderful person to be around. But, 
and there's a big but there. Some people couldn't, had a hard time dealing with his uh, massively strange behavior. One of the things he did, and I've forgotten the Indian name for this, but he used to, for instance, believe that he should clean his intestines. So he would, and I mean, I'm going to say this, and if you, you know, don't believe it, that's probably smart. But on the other hand, maybe not. Uh, he used to take his, he used to vomit out his intestines, clean them with water, and then hang them on the line to dry, and then suck them back into his being. He also was known to take off his arms frequently and put them in a corner of the masjid. Okay, so let's just digest that for a minute. <laughs> he would actually remove one or both of his arms and just put them somewhere. And then he would sit there like a motherfucker and, and wait for people to come in and go, ah, what's that? <laughs> what is that? Yeah. And he'd, he'd laugh and say, that just, you know, relaxing or something, some ridiculous. So who knows? That's if, beyond enigmatic, yeah, maybe. No, who knows? I mean, the trouble about this whole thing of belief in cities and and strange behaviors of you weren't there actually there you can't attest to it but i did want to tell one story um which i think is is sort of important in in the dynamic i've had with him and that other people have with saints and teachers that are no longer in the body but you can have a relationship with them because they are beyond time and space uh um clearly uh <laughs> has proven that millions of times uh but charity um was was more or less in that same boat but my personal experience has been manifold and the most recent one i had that i can remember was um a few years ago uh i was i was going through a depression which seemed to be lasting for days and you know I mean, I, I don't remember what caused it or whether I'm just basically depressive, but I remember feeling down and down and down and down and couldn't get any work done and, and couldn't relate to anyone and was just in a horrible, hideous state. And then, bingo, I thought, ah, Shirdi Sai Baba. I, I, I kind of begged him to help me. <laughs> and uh, nothing happened. And then... Uh, Either that night or maybe a night later, I don't remember, honestly, I had a, a, a lucid dream. I don't even remember my dreams. I'm one of the people that no longer remembers dreams. It's rare for me uh, to remember a dream anymore. And this dream, when I woke up in the morning, was as clear as day and incredibly powerful, but completely unintelligible. And what it was, um, I was in Shirdi. Uh, I didn't know what body I was in. I didn't seem to think it was me. Um, but I was there. I think I was just a person there. And I was witnessing a very strange event. I was witnessing Shirdi Sai Baba sitting with a, a small grinder and grinding wheat. Now, analysts of, of his have said that that's because he was grinding karma for others, uh, and that the elements as represented by the attachment to the body were represented in the wheat and grinding the wheat was a, a symbolic way of saying, this is, you have to grind and work hard and meditate 
to get out all of this ego-based desire systems. But on this occasion, um, I remember in the dream watching him grind the wheat and there were women, older women sitting sort of next to him and he was yelling at them. And I was just, a, I didn't respond to any of this, but I was just watching this. And he was yelling at the women and grinding the wheat assiduously, like boom, boom, grind, 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 would not stop. And then eventually the women grabbed the grinder from Baba and took it and started grinding it themselves, at which he started yelling at them even more. And then in the dream, I distinctly remember his saying to them, out, out, go take it where you're supposed to take it. Take it, take it. And the women ran out of the masjid where they were with him and proceeded to go around the outskirts of Shirdi village and distribute the grounded wheat, the grinded wheat on the outskirts in a circle around this small village. But nevertheless, it took them a while for women to do this. And I didn't know that in, at that moment, but I knew they took the wheat and went away from where he was and he kind of yelled them out, jowled them out. Okay, that in itself is, is what it is, a dream. But the next day I was very turned on by this, you know, oh my God, I had a dream about Shirdi Sai Baba. I dash out of a great, 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 great sitter. And so I thought, I'm going to go to a book and read about him all day. Screw everything. I'm just going to do that. I'm just going to sit and read about Shirdi Sai Baba, meditate about him and smoke ganja about it and the whole thing. <laughs> so I picked up a book, um, which was, there's many books about Sai Baba, but this was a very thin little book. And um, it was an Indian book and therefore was falling apart and opened it. And the very first chapter uh, was this, and I'm gonna read from the book. Is that okay, Roger? Cause it's kind yeah. of long. All right. No, no. All right, the book said, and I'm, remember, I just picked up the book and opened it. It was sometime after 1910, there was an epidemic of cholera in Shirdi. The administration tried everything they could to alleviate the sufferings of people. At last, some people approached Sai Baba and pleaded with them to help. The fakir was moved. He went to a nearby house, picked up a grinding stone, and began to make preparations for grinding wheat. He spread a sack on the floor, and thereon set a grinding stone and started grinding the wheat by putting a few handfuls at a time of wheat. Devotees thought, what business Baba had with the grinding of wheat when he possessed nothing and stored nothing, and he lived on arms? Immediately, this news of Baba's grinding wheat spread into the village, and at once men and women ran to the masjid and flocked there to see Baba's act. Four bold women from the crowd forced their way up and pushing Baba aside, took forcibly the peg or handle into their hands and singing Baba's leelas, started grinding. At first, Baba was enraged, but on seeing the women's love and devotion, he was much pleased and began to smile. While they were grinding, they began to think that Baba had no house, no property, no children, none to look after, and he lived on arms, and therefore he did not require any wheat flour for making bread or roti. What will he do with this big quantity of flour? Perhaps as Baba is very kind, he will distribute the flour amongst us. Thinking in this way while singing, they finished the grinding, and after putting the hand mill aside, they divided the flour into four portions and took them on one each on their heads. 
Sai Baba, who was calm and quiet up till now, got wild and started abusing him, saying, have you gone mad? Whose father's property are you, are you looting away from me? Have I borrowed any wheat from you so you can safely take the flour? Now do this. Take the flour and sprinkle it on the village borders. On hearing this, the women felt abashed and whispering amongst them went away to the outskirts of the village and spread the flour as directed by Baba. From this time onward, the cholera epidemic started to subside. Patients recovered and Shirdi was completely free from this doom of cholera. So, you know, you got a double miracle here for this little lad here from the north of England. Uh, one was having the dream, uh, which is rare. I'd had a few dreams about Sai Baba, but not many. And the dream, the clarity of the dream was amazing and, and transformative, as you can imagine, Raga. Mm -hmm. And then picking up the book, and it was the first thing I saw, and it was the first thing in the book. That's why, I, you know, was that exact story. And it was the day after I, I had the dream. And I'd never read that book. It was, it was unread by me. And I'd never heard the story, and I didn't know anything about it. And the dream, so there's many things going on here. One, I had a dream that I don't dream, or I dream, but I don't remember them. Two, I had the exact dream of what actually happened, which was a, in itself kind of a miracle. And then reading what was the actual, what actually happened was that he took a physical set of molecules, ground wheat, and used it to protect his village from this awful disease. Hmm. On further study, I found that the grinding of the wheat, which he did sometimes, was for him always a way of presenting to the people around him, you must uh, continue to grind away at your foolishness and um, whim whimsical nature and attachment to wealth and power. And uh, that was his way of doing it. So there's many things going on there. Yeah. Well, since then, my own um, sense of connection with him has deepened because it was a real uh, kind of moment in one's life. You know, it's just a real incredible moment. And just so you know, I mean, Raghu had continuous darshan with Maharaji and with, with others. I've had similar experiences, not, not Maharaji, but others. And lives of, of, of non-skepticism in, in, in the way of opening your heart to these men and women who live and exist beyond time and space, a normal causation because they are indeed God-men and God-women. I remain a skeptical person, and Raga and I are very similar, I think, in the sense that we, we, we're not easy prey. You know? <laughs> uh, it, it has to be direct experience of some kind in order to talk to other people about it and say, you know, this has meaning. It's not just a, a wish-fulfillment exercise in you know, living in this rather strange world we live in with all kinds of, of um, antagonisms and foolishness. You know, when I saw that photograph of the wife of the Treasury Secretary coming off the plane that they'd hired that they had no right to be <laughs> in, and then she went on to describe in intimate detail the design of clothes and shoes and scarves and haircut that she had, I thought, no, nah, I got to die. <laughs> I, I don't want to be on this fucking planet anymore with this person and these people who've taken, stole the United States of America from us um, acting. 
but the real truth is, isn't it, um, that this is all a passing dream in any case. It'll be gone in a second. In one of the Sai Baba books, he mentions uh, to a, a, a devotee, he says, yeah, this, this life is like a day or it's like a single note. Hmm. So don't get too... Don't get too stressed by, uh, you know, Herr Trump or the rest of them, because it'll all be dust. And, and that gets to the Vibhuti and Udi part of Shirdi Sai Baba, who, who would create healing Vibhuti dust. But again, it wasn't just the literal um, miraculous process of, of healing. It was that we he would say frequently, this is what you're going to become, folks. Hmm. You yeah. think you're a king? You think you got a great talk show? You think you design great jewelry? See this dust that's on my picture? You're going to be that like really soon. <laughs> and there is in there an ultimate kind of teaching. I have a thought uh, that when we discuss doing this and uh, talking about surety, uh, the thought that came to me is uh, Ramdas says on a fairly continual basis, everyone has a guru. You don't necessarily meet that guru in the physical body. They do not require connecting with you through a physical body if they are the true guru. So um, Recently, uh, actually, it's going on right now. We're actually doing an autumn mindfulness and meditation course, Ramdas course, that just started yesterday, and it's going on through October, I believe. Um, and we have a Facebook group where people join and are able to communicate and talk to each other about the elements of the course and pose questions, and some of us will, you know, respond and so on. And one of them was. Everyone has a guru. What does that mean? Kind of, you know, that kind of, you know, really straight ahead question. Um, and now you talked about these miracles that Shirdi Sai Baba is known for many, many extraordinary miracles. They're in these books that you can find. And of course, Neem Karoli Baba, same thing. And, and we were party to those. So in, in that way, there's not even a question. That's why Ramdas, when he first came back, you know, and had these experiences, there was such uh, a deep trust in him. That's why so many of us went over to India at that time to experience what he experienced. But those miracles, as he found out, were just, uh, they were a, just a carnival barker come on come on in, come on in, watch the show. So, you know, you were blown away and you, you'd let go. And in this case, you watching the show mean meant letting your mind go. Stop being, de being dependent, thinking that your thinking mind and your feelings and your sight and your hearing, all of your senses, were your reality. Once that got smashed up, you had a chance to move into another plane of consciousness. And, and in that other plane of consciousness was the possibility of connecting with that uh, truth that is represented by a being like uh, Shirdi Sai Baba 
in this case we're talking about. And uh, I, I have to point you out to be in this case, David, um, because I know of your connection with him. I mean, we've known each other since I came back from India in 19, well, it's probably 73, I think. 72 when we met, probably at, at, when I came back, uh, 73, we went to Hilda's and that's where I met you. Um, and I know of your deep, deep connectivity with him throughout all these years. He who left that body in 1918. And, uh, and I think you're living proof to everybody out there who's listening when we talk about the reality is that everyone does have that inner guide that manifests, you know, in in a uh, with a name and a face, mm. and and that connectivity happens, and nothing that you do about it, they get you. You don't find them. I mean, you mm. you may hear you may hear David's story right now. You may hear this dream. You may hear. Uh, you know, some, some other aspect during this podcast about this being, and something may just click, and you go, mm. wow, that's, you know, I'm, I'm going um, to check it out. And in that checking out, something else happens. This has happened innumerable. Thousands and thousands of people have come to Neem Karoli Baba through just reading uh, Miracle of Love and mm. now Love Everyone, you know, mm. and, and, and other of Ram Dass's books and so on. So I guess I'm just getting at the point is the the effort that anyone might put in to allow their minds to be shattered, allow themselves to uh, not stay fixed in the uh, identification with who we think we are as we've grown up, allows that other place, allows these beings to actually come in and connect with you. And uh, I, I've seen, I just heard, uh, you know, a story of, of a woman, a banker in New York who, uh, whose son gave her a, a birthday gift, happened to be, and she was not into any of this stuff, happened to be a, a CD by Krishnadas, a chant CD. And she thought, oh, this is interesting, you know, and it didn't, but she kept on to it, might listen to it a little bit. Then she decided soon after she wanted to go on a vacation and so in uh, South America, and she knew about Omega, and Omega has a place in, um, I forget which country, um, in South America, uh, and uh, it was completely booked. She didn't know who was giving, you know, the, the retreat or any of it, and then while she was on the phone, they went, oh, oh somebody just canceled. You can come. Mm. It was Krishnadas. <laughs> she goes to the event. And she's sitting through the stuff, and then at one point he's doing chalisas. She didn't know nothing from it. What's a ch Hanuman chalisa? You know, 40 verses in praise of the monkey god. Who's that? <laughs> she closed her eyes and just went along through the waves of, of the feeling that the singing was bringing to her. And then suddenly something snapped, and she fell apart and just weeping for not any reason, had no idea. David, from that point on, this woman is completely connected to Maharaji and has had incredible miracles happen to her that would blow your mind. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. you know, 
what was it that the karma of getting that thing, that record from Krishnadas, the karma of wanting to go to a place that she didn't even know he was at, mm. you know, it's really way beyond our control. I mean, if we think we are doing a member, David is working, by the way, everybody, uh, on this incredible film about K.C. Tiwari, one of our mentors in India, who is one of the closest beings to Neem Karoli Baba over the, over the last you know, 60 years of his life or something. And, um, and he used to come, David knows this well, and he would look in your eyes and go, <laughs> if you think you're doing it, my boy, you are very lost. <laughs> you think you're doing it you're lost you know so and that's such a truism man. so yeah, so I, this is a great yeah. story dave really great um and uh and everybody no matter what I'm, I'm saying it's potentially you know you're listening to this out there it's potential is that you may have a connectivity with shirdi sai baba you may have a connectivity connectivity to uh neem karoli baba ramana maharshi i mean i just did an amazing uh podcast day the other day with a longtime devotee who wrote a wonderful book be as you are uh, with uh, ramana you know be open anything can happen but even if none of it happens in this moment at the very least these beings have incredible teachings you know the essence of of shirdi sai baba to cut through that sectarian bullshit in, in, in his lifetime of, of Muslims and Hindus, which, you know, they've been rioting and killing each other forever. And, of course, look what's going on in our times right now uh, with, you know, obviously Muslim and Christianity. And that's been going on forever. These beings shine a light that we can embody and we need to embody. So even if it's not a personal connectivity to, to your quote-unquote, to him as a guru... There is certainly a light that we can uh, absorb, and and we certainly can emulate uh, in this world. So, well, yeah. you know, I, I what I wanted to not add to that because you you really sort of completed the the vision of that. But I, you know, I used to sometimes think that people who were with gurus and stuff were, you know, crazy actually. Uh, a long time ago, uh, but I did think that. And then various things moved me away from that, including, you know, ethnogenic or whatever you call them, ethnogenic psychedelic <laughs> drugs and all of that. Yeah. But much more important than that, I realized a long time ago, and I think someone urged me towards this, but I don't remember who, was that we think we're so cool, you know, and who the heck with a brain is gonna look at a picture of a dead old man and go, and go into a transformed state mm-hmm. or into a state of, of pure service or altruism. The fact of the matter is we're, we're also poverty stricken. I was in terms of my connection to the universe and to any divine source that is absolute, the height of arrogance to say that a picture won't help you. A picture will damn well help you because it reminds you that this being in this case, Shirdi Saibaba, or quite a few others, um, Ramana Maharshi, of course, so many that we know about. That is the only way you're going to get through to that. 
In other words, you can have this, I guess they call it Advaitic connection to the universe. And I don't believe in gods and deities and teachers, or anything, but most of us don't. So it's really stupid to reject one when you don't have the other. And that was what got me, to me early on in my relationship with the, with the Maharaji Satsang was that most of the people that are all of you are, are terrific people and, and in some ways very normal people. Uh, well, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, they're not floating around in this kind of new agey, you know, bliss filled detachment from the world. Not, not at all. I mean, Christian Das has said quite recently, actually, I read it somewhere that, you know, I, I'm, I don't have to go into the jungle. I will, but I don't have to. I like to be in the world and of the world and, and, and see how that works. And for me, just to look at a picture of Maharaji or Shirdi Sai Baba or Anandamayi Ma and some others will fill me with a feeling and a connection which I do not have just automatically. Therefore, the rejection of people who do this is arrogant and stupid because those people are simply humbling themselves to say, I need this to get to that. I need it. It will not happen by reading books or it won't happen just by even meditation. I need to look in the eyes of an ascended master and go, you existed and you exist. Ergo, I can relieve myself of the worst aspect of nihilism and lack of faith and somewhere to go apart from, you know, the bathroom. I mean, ah. Uh, it's so powerful to look at an icon when you need that. And I did. I, I needed to look at pictures of Shirdi. I have them all over my house. You know, when Christian Das came here recently, he was in my apartment for like 20 seconds and he looks around and he goes, this Shirdi Sai Baba is everywhere. <laughs> I, I said, yeah, is that a problem? <laughs> and he said, no, no, it's everywhere. Look here, he's there, he's everywhere. And it's true. And the reason is I need that. If I don't have that, I'm pretty lost because I'll get depressed about, oh God, you know, the world is so fucked up and I'm getting older, I'm gonna die. And my daughter didn't call me for six months and whatever, you know. And I realize that we have to humble ourselves to the extent of saying connection with an out of body or a, a long passed away teacher guru like Ananda Mahima, I defy anyone to look at a picture of Ananda Mahima for longer than 30 seconds and not be moved from where they were. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Uh, and uh, again, this is not a podcast uh, of proselytizing for gurus. This is no. not what this is about. This is about... Having, I mean, David's story, that's why, you know, I really wanted to do this because it shows the possibility of an opening through a being like this. And, and uh, that's all I'm, I'm really counting on for everybody listening is to be open to any possibility. And, and when you are reading about uh, beings like this, for instance, you know that this this has gone through the test of time, and there is there are many teachers that come from the east, and they do take advantage of people, and they are not, you know, they are not truth, but there are known truth beings 
That's another way to put it. And mm. that's why we wanted to introduce everybody to Shuri Sai Baba. So thank you, David, for well, doing I, that. I, it makes me really happy to do this because it makes me think about him. Yeah. Because yeah, another yeah. aspect of this, which is really unfortunate for most of us, is that we can spend hours, days, months in another place, uh, you know, obsessed with whatever it is that we're worried about, you know. And then the reason I do put pictures of him all over the place is because I can't get away from him and I don't mm. want to because the, the grace of even knowing about him, you know, I mean, before knowing about him and Maharaji and a few others, the people I was most crazed about in the world were usually great novelists, great blues players and, and Eric Clapton. And, you know, they were they were inspiring to me. And still are. But you you're know. from England. For us, it was Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck, okay? <laughs> well, At we least you had great novelists. We, we had Mickey Mouse. I mean, <laughs> no, I'm being pretentious. I mean, I, I wasn't reading great novels at the age of four. But you know, <laughs> I, my, my uh, horizon was okay if you're 20 years old, maybe. But when you get mm. to be ancient, it's not enough, <laughs> you know, because you realize that very soon, very soon, uh, this this Maya, this this dream of life, will will eventually turn into another reality. Yeah, and that um, those uh, kind teachers, like the ones we've been mentioning, uh, are there to imp to impress upon us that uh, you know our our vision out of conditioning, out out of the cultural conditioning we grew up in, uh, is very limited, and it will cause depression, and worse. I mean, I watch this TV show called American Greed. It's a ridiculous <laughs> television show, but I watch it. It's about people who did really bad, egregious things. You know, they, they start a company and then start stealing money and they're like Madoff oh, and everything. And, you know, I watched that thing with De Niro playing Madoff. And I, I actually watched the other one with Richard Dreyfuss playing Madoff. God knows why. Uh, my partner in life was looking at me as if I'd literally gone mad. Why are you wasting your time with these fools, these greedy pigs? Uh, karma, you know, just... <laughs> seeing the obsessions of people and then the, mm. it doesn't end well you know? <laughs> it doesn't end well for mm. bernie madoff who's in jail forever and he's just an extreme example but the fact is you you, you have to have compassion for people who just never come into contact with anything which can transform them mm. hey i have to say i have jeff to make sessions a... jeff sessions if you oh, listen okay please go and take come some on, we were so uplifted i please <laughs> i just wanted to inform him that he should take a nice dose of organic mescaline Okay. All right. Yeah. That's what we used to say in the 60s, right? We used to, yes. Nixon needs a little dose of acid and we'll put yeah. it in his water. Yeah. Um, but I want to just say, as a, cause we're at the end of the show, um, just you've reminded me when you told the story about Krishna's walking and going, wow, there's just Shirdi Sai Baba wall to wall. And, <laughs> you know, you could say that about Neem Karoli Baba here, you know, in, in my room right now. And um, that reflection when you do look at that being and to me they're inter interchangeable mm. is is reflecting on your truly your true self mm. and that reminds of what Ramani, Ramana Maharshi the great sage of Arunachala said and it's this is to me the highest truth God guru and self are one so when that reflection comes in and you identify that being with the truest part of yourself, that is really what this is about. 
This is, you know, ultimately, this is about the assimilation. I don't know if that's the right word. This is about the joining, the yoga. This is what yoga is all about, of the individual soul and the oversoul, right? Jivatman and Atman. And this is just a method to do that at a certain point when you've reached your destination, which is understanding that uh, without mind, that you are just one. You are that being, and you are a part of the fabric of the one. So this walking into David's house and seeing Shirdi everywhere is, is an immediate reflection on that place inside ourselves, which is truth. So, uh, you know, it, it's a, it is a, a very, very specific method. So I urge everybody out there, go check out Shirdi Sai Bob. We're going to put up, a, a, a David uh, will give us uh, names of some of the books that he would recommend. We're going to put them up on the show notes uh, so people, you can go get them. We're going to put up the stuff around Marley that we talked about. I don't know about the cold shower stuff. We'll, we'll figure that one out, too. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, oh, the third patriarch stuff. We're gonna. It's gonna be a rich, rich um, page, Dave, full of fantastic information. Yeah. And um, so again, I really appreciate you being here as usual. Uh, I try and grab Dave every uh, month or so. Uh, so because uh, you know, I mean, Raghu, what's so great about this stuff is is that you know, just doing this podcast with you and having done many. But this one that we're talking about right now here, it helps me maintain my concentration on on this miracle of being even allowed to know that this person exists. Because yeah. it is kind of, isn't it kind of perplexing that if I were to go to everybody in my apartment building and say, have you heard of Shirley Sai Baba? They'd go, you know, what, what is that? Is that Indian food? And, you know, it, it, it's not because they're stupid. It's because it's a great, great gift from that being to you to let you be uh, even aware yeah, of them. Exactly. And while I'm making this film for Raghu, um, I love to remember about Mr. Tuari, I'm constantly, um, you know, sort of enlightened by it. I don't mean fully enlightened. I just mean it enlightens yeah. me in the immediate. Yeah. When you see this man, Casey Tuari, in Samadhi and then other people, he was an amazing devotee of Nimkaroli, but also a, a huge catalyst and friend and, and teacher for the Westerners who were there. Yeah. I, I met him and he was that for me too. And uh, I just think to myself, God, what a gig this is. <laughs> I'm, I'm Every day I'm having to look at pictures of, of, of great beings. Yeah. So you don't need to be making a film to do that. All you need to do is get a book and look at it and see if it if it fits your bill. Have good karmas. That's what you got to have, which yep. you do, and everybody listening uh, as well does uh, to just about hear about these beings. So, thank you again. Thank David. you. Thank you. Namaste. We shall Namaste. see you yep. next time. Everybody, go to uh, beherenownetwork.com. Go to Mind Rolling, and you'll uh, catch the. Uh, all of the show notes will include everything as we sent before. We'll see you next week. <laughs>